Well, good evening. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along tonight, you may turn to 1 Kings chapter 3 as we continue our studies in the book of Kings, 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to be talking about King Solomon this evening as we will for the next several chapters in the book of Kings. But before we talk about King Solomon, I'd like to talk about King Charles III. As you may know, his coronation is planned for Saturday, the 6th of May, just a few weeks from now, to be held at Westminster Abbey in London. And Charles, King Charles III is an interesting character for a couple of different reasons. His request for his, con- for his coronation has been a little bit controversial, hasn't it? He's modern, he's perhaps more open-minded than his mother and many of the kings that preceded him, or queens. Instead of being designated the defender of the faith, the Christian faith, which is the title of the monarch of England, he wants to expand this title to be known as the defender of faiths, plural. How thoughtful of him to consider including other people than Christians in his reign. He wants an ecumenical coronation, and that has led to a lot of resistance, thank God, from the Church of England clergy. I don't know what's going to happen in the outcome. The final final list has not been given, the final program, so I don't know what will happen, but they're giving pushback. He wants to have not just Christians there offering prayers, but maybe a rabbi, a Muslim imam, maybe Hindu, and some other people of their faiths. And even atheists have argued on the news, English atheists who are historians, that the monarchy, the coronation, is explicitly a Christian event. All right? That's what it's supposed to be historically. It's been like that for centuries. In the... I can't resist. <laughs> Why doesn't the Church of excommunicate? <laughs> well, I'm not sure they can because their church government says he's the head. <laughs> That's right. It's a strange, yeah, review those Wednesday night classes when he talked about the church and state, the Church of England. It's a strange scenario to be on, to to be, wow, I don't agree with with really any of that uh, that's unfolded. In the book of Kings, we know that it's about kings, but I mentioned a few weeks ago that it's about more than just kings, right? It's also about God's prophets who send, whom he sends to speak to the kings as a form of holding them accountable and reminding them that they are to serve the heavenly king. What did we learn from 1 Kings 1 through 2? 1 Kings chapter 1 looked like a disaster, didn't it? Adonijah, the son of David, the oldest surviving son of David, he had himself crowned king instead of Solomon. And we noticed in that in that first chapter, Solomon eventually has his crowning moment, his coronation, and it was the opposite of what Adonijah tried to do. A lot of the people that first supported Adonijah became quite fearful. In chapter 2, we noted that Solomon decided once he was established as king, and that was a key word, right? Established as the king, that he enforced some issues of justice. 
And we noted that the three or four individuals that were mentioned there, uh, some of those, one was exiled, right? One he blessed, the one that helped his father when his father went into exile, when he was undergoing a coup from another son. But two of those men died and Solomon had them put to death. Some commentators noticed that oh, Solomon is just engaging in a personal vendetta. And I suggested that that was not necessarily the case, that these are examples of justice exercised by Solomon early in his reign. What's the next section in the book of Kings about? The next big section, the next nine chapters, beginning with verse 3 all the way to 11, describes and it summarizes the reign of King Solomon. And throughout this section, it begins here in chapter 3 with the element, the focus of wisdom, right? God gives the king wisdom. And then in the second part of chapter 3, we have one example of how he applied that wisdom to a legal case in his day. But there are other things that these nine chapters discuss. We learned about the wise administration that Solomon implemented when he became king. We learn things about the economy and how Solomon uh, arranged things in the government. We will learn things about the international standing of Israel as a nation during Solomon's reign, the preparation for the building of the palace, and later, the temple. The splendors of Solomon's reign became known internationally in his day. And we remember hearing about the Queen of Sheba that came to see what kind of a reign this actually was. And so in the book of Kings here, in these chapters that are before us, yes, there is a sense in which Solomon is described as the ideal wise ruler. We note that particularly in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. But there's also something that we know is coming. There is a theological assessment of King Solomon, and it's going to turn uh, quite ugly by the time we come to chapter 11. I mean, if, if we could summarize Solomon's life, the wisest man who became the greatest fool, it's heartbreaking when we come to chapters 9, 10, and 11 with some of the things that Solomon engages in. And so in these nine chapters, chapters three and four emphasize Solomon in quite a positive light with themes about wisdom and justice. And then from chapter five all the way to nine, verse nine, chapter nine, verse nine, we learn about the administration, the building projects, temple, uh, palace and temple. And then in those final, those remaining chapters, Chapters 9, verse 10, all the way to 11. We do learn about Solomon's great wealth and the fame that spread throughout the ancient world at that time. But we also learn about his descent into idolatry. And the positive part of our chapter tonight begins with this request that, God, that Solomon makes to God for wisdom. And all of us can stop to think about our own lives, how important is wisdom in our life. We are not Solomon, but we can ask God for wisdom too, can't we? How should we assess these opening verses? And there are two situations for us to think about and evaluate. Verse 1 begins, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord 
and the wall around Jerusalem. Was this a good decision? Was it a bad decision for Solomon to take an Egyptian wife? Was it good or bad? She's not an Israelite, we know that, that's for sure. And so the the commentators raised the question at this point, was this something that was sinful? Was it not sinful? And there are arguments on both sides. Another question we can ask ourselves, was this a violation of the Mosaic law? And if it was, what specific violation was Solomon committing? He didn't marry a Canaanite technically, did he? And that's what some people will say to try to say that this is something that is actually good. And so Bible commentators vary in how they assess Solomon as a king and even this opening uh, piece of evidence that we have about this marriage alliance. Notice it's also with the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There's no doubt that this is a political alliance. It is a kind of dynastic marriage alliance that he makes. It's a form of international diplomacy. That's why this marriage on one level takes place. Is this a hint of his future downfall? Or is this a sign that the nation of Israel has become powerful and that this alliance means the Egyptians are subservient to the Israelites? I mean, if that's the case, then we could be more sympathetic to what, has, what we have just read. To give you an example, Ellicott's commentary for English readers, right, a free commentary in the internet, begins this assessment with no fault. There is no fault to be found in this alliance by the sacred historian, that is, the author of Kings. For the Egyptians were never looked upon with the same aversion as the strange women of the Canaanite races. And then interestingly, this commentary quotes from Psalm 4510. And in that particular psalm, that verse, it does seem to describe a foreign lady that is married to the, queen, to the king, and we read there, forget her own people and her father's house. Now, that's a, that's a pretty creative way, I think, of explaining that. It's possible, I don't know. Against that, uh, Donald Weissman in the Tyndale Old Testament commentary, he says this, this marriage was the beginning of Solomon's spiritual downfall. And so, God's people have interpreted this in different ways. Some think it was pretty positive, it's not really that serious of an issue, and others think that, no, this is really a bad sign. Now, you may want to know that Solomon already has a wife. He already has at least one wife at this time. He already married, uh, he was the husband of an Ammonitess and had a son. We learn about that later in chapter 11. And also chapter 14. So this is not his first wife. If he's violating anything from the law of Moses, it might be from the warning Moses gave about the future kings of Israel, that they are not to multiply wives. I mean, what he did was very common in the ancient world in in making a marriage alliance with another nation. That's the first issue for us to to think about and assess. The second issue is found in verses 2, 3, and 4. The people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only or except he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. 
And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And so here we have the second issue of thinking about and assessing the high places. Solomon is that one. We just read that. And the people of Israel are also worshiping there. High places is kind of a confusing thing on some levels when we think about all of the different Old Testament passages that talk about a high place. I mean, for, 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 for starters, a high place could be a Canaanite place of worship or an Israelite place of worship, right? It could be a place where false gods and idols are worshipped, or it could be a place where the true God is worshipped. And so that is one distinction for us to keep in mind. They were often at high places of elevation. We read about that in Numbers and in 1 Samuel. But they could also be at low points within towns and villages. 2 Kings 17 gives examples of that. They could even be in a valley, according to Jeremiah chapter 7. The term high high places, so we know now that it can mean different things. It was a place where they sacrificed. They were sometimes considered shrines. Idols could be found there, but they were places of worship. We know that Solomon seems to have gone there because he was worshiping the, the true God. He was worshiping the Lord. The tabernacle and the true altar were located at, at first at the great high place at Gibeon. This is where Solomon went to. We not only read that here in 1 Kings 3, but we read about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 1. Some of these high places were quite small. They could be filled with idols or other Canaanite relics of idolatry that the Israelites did not destroy. They did not obey the instructions Moses gave through the law. Some of these were dedicated to pagan gods. One of the reasons why we need to be aware of these places that were scattered all throughout Israel is because we read here that Solomon was using them along with the other Israelites for worship. And it seems legitimate here, but that word except or unless that follows it raises some questions in my mind. These places, for the most part, later on in the book of Kings, are going to be roundly condemned as places where an Israelite is not supposed to go. And yet it seems to me that Israelites were going to these various shrines or these various high places throughout Israel for perhaps more than one reason. Some of them may have been good. Others of them may not have been good. The author of Kings later looks down. Once the temple is built, he looks down upon these these high places in pejorative ways that are very negative. As one author said, they represent conflicting loyalty and competing allegiance. Israelites were expressly forbidden to use such places in the worship of God. Deuteronomy 7.5 says that in Deuteronomy 12.5. And yet at the same time, we have these other commands that are found like in Exodus and even in Deuteronomy where God is commanding the building of special altars throughout the land. Beginning with Solomon's reign, the toleration of high places, it would lead to the mixing of the worship of the true God with worship of false gods. It would lead to apostasy, the turning away from the true God 
in the life of many people in Israel. And many Christian scholars believe that Solomon became an apostate. We will deal with that later on as we come to that section of the book of Kings. So how should we assess these two situations? I think first we should look at that phrase, Solomon loved the Lord. That's positive, isn't it? It does say that he followed in the faith footsteps of his father, David. That seems to be quite positive. And overall, chapters 3 and 4 uh, do present Solomon in, a, in an ideal way, a wise king who rules well. Again, second, but the statement about Solomon loving the Lord, it's followed by that phrase, only or except he made offerings at the high places. Perhaps his love for the Lord is sometimes just like our love for the Lord. There is a mixture of devotion to God and a mixture of self-love or our own interest. What did Solomon ask God for when God appeared to him? And we see that in verses 5 through 10. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. You have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? That, to me, sounds very positive. He's there seven miles, approximately seven miles from Jerusalem. He is at Gibeon, that is, the central place, the greatest high place in Israel. And something that, again, is a mystery to me when we read parts of the Old Testament, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, why did he leave the rest of the tabernacle? Why did he leave all of the other furnishings of the tabernacle in a different location there at Gibeon? It's puzzling to me. It seems that that's the case for many, many years. I know there's a political explanation that sort of makes sense, but I simply don't know why David did that. I don't know why he didn't bring everything else to Jerusalem as well. If you know the answer later, tell me. But God does seem pleased with Solomon in the way that he appeared to him. We know that in the Old Testament, dreams from God are often forms of revelation. And so God reveals himself to Solomon and he says, What do you want? I mean, if God asked you tonight, what do you want? What would you say? But in this form of revelation, Solomon's request can be broken down into two, three, or four different ways of of looking at what he's asking for, and all of it seems to be absolutely commendable. It's good, isn't it? 
It's beautiful what Solomon says in this response to God. What do you want? I'll give it to you. First, his prayer acknowledges God's past faithfulness. That Hebrew word hesed, right, for covenant faithfulness that could be translated loving kindness or steadfast love. Different translations are all good. Solomon seems to already understand in his response to God, he acknowledges, God, you have been so faithful in the past to my father David. All of these promises, you were faithful to him. He acknowledges that God is the one who allowed David to have the kingship that he enjoyed. It was based on that covenant promise that God made to David long ago. Another aspect here is that Solomon, he asked God for that ongoing favor. Just as you, was, you were so favorable towards my father, David, I, we still need to depend on that grace. We still need the favor from you, O Lord. The language comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Solomon is confessing before God the unique redemptive status of Israel. There is no other nation at this point in history that God had entered into covenant with. And Solomon recognizes this divine election, this historical election of a nation. And he is filled with humility. He understands that God is a source of the blessings that came through the life of David even prior to that, through Abraham and the life of the nation. The nation has increased in population evidently. Third, it expresses great humility. That statement in verse 7, I am only a little child. I do not know how to go out out or to come in. That, That is an idiom, isn't it? Solomon is not a little child. He is a married man with a son, and he now has at least two wives. But he's confessing before God his lack of experience in the area of leadership. He is acknowledging, God, I need help. In this situation, I want to be a good leader. And so this phrase, how to go out and come in, it can mean in other texts to possess leadership qualities or to manage business. Numbers 27, Deuteronomy 31, Joshua 14, and 1 Samuel chapter 18. And there are a few other texts that use that phrase. Solomon is asking God to help him carry out my royal duties As king of Israel. I mean, after all, Abraham had led the small nation early on. Moses followed him, Joshua, Samuel, and David. And now the leadership, the the load of leadership is being placed on Solomon's shoulders. And he says, God, I need your help. According to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, the leader of Israel must embody the standards that God had given to the nation. And he is asking God. It's a beautiful request that he he is seeking help from God. Solomon may have also anticipated that some of the old ways of governing that we read prior to this, maybe there needs to be some adjustments in the administration of God's kingdom and of his people. And we will see that in the next chapter. He will make changes. Fourth, he asks God for the ability to carry out his duties specifically as he remembers the Abrahamic promise of you will increase, you'll become too numerous to count, and that is kind of what he is saying here. Solomon's role as king was quite different from David's in one respect. Much of David's kingdom and his reign as king involved fighting the enemies of Israel. 
Solomon doesn't have that situation before him. Solomon is largely a king over a peaceful, a prosperous, and a very influential kingdom where all of the surrounding nations have already been conquered and subjugated by his father, David. And that follows the pattern in Scripture. Once the enemies are defeated, then you build a temple. I think that's true in the creation account, and here it seems true as well, and that's why the temple expands after Jesus Christ rises from the dead. It's the same pattern that we see. Solomon was facing and inheriting a different situation than David. The nation will rise to perhaps its most influential and powerful point in Israel's history, at least to this date. He is a peacetime king. He is a king that will have a great and famous reputation for his wealth and also for his wisdom. The splendor of his reign will be made known to other nations. In verses 10 through 15, how did God respond to his request? Well, verse 10 summarizes it in a beautiful way. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. So, so far, it seems that most of what we are reading in this chapter is very positive, isn't it? Verse 11 goes on to say, And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Solomon is thankful for how God answered his request and that's tested, that, that, that is revealed in the fact that he offers this feast for the servants that are in his kingdom. Again, God is pleased with Solomon's request because Solomon asked God for wisdom and discernment specifically for how he would reign as king. These verses clearly testify that God was pleased with Solomon's request, and it would be for good reason. Solomon is making a request that is similar to the duty that Adam had in the very beginning, right? He was supposed to discern between good and evil. And that is the mark in Israel and really of any leader since then, that leadership that is wise and that is just must be able to discern between that which is good and that which is evil and choose the right path. At various points in the Old Testament, we encounter this emphasis about this leadership quality in the life of God's people, that they need to know right from wrong. Didn't Moses talk a lot about this in relation to those that would judge Israel? There is a common tendency to to distort justice. 
through whatever means. And Moses warned the people of that. And already to this point in Israel's history, whether it was a judge or people prior to them, we do see God's leaders abusing justice and not making the proper distinction between right and wrong. I mean, King Saul struggled with that, didn't he? In the second part of the chapter, we will witness one specific example. There could be many others where Solomon applies the wisdom, the discernment that God had given to him. Now, I I read a helpful application, and this would be in, I think, many commentaries. Maybe you've already thought of this because of the main point that I've placed in the outline. All Christians, you don't have to be a king, you don't have to be a queen. All Christians can ask God for wisdom, right? Where do we learn that in the New Testament? James chapter 1 is one beautiful chapter that reminds us that we serve a generous God and we can ask God for wisdom amidst all of the trials in our lives. God loves to give these kinds of good gifts to his people. I believe we sing part of this hymn sometimes on our prayer meeting Sunday evenings. There's a part of a song that John Newton wrote that says this, Come my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray, therefore will not say thee nay. I mean, I suppose we need to update that a little bit into modern English. If you're asking God for wisdom, as Solomon asked, you're not a king, you're not a queen, but you can still ask and God can still give it to you. And James reminds us as we navigate the difficult trials that can happen in our lives, we can ask God for his divine help. James tells us in James 1 verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. I mean, that is a promise to us in the Bible, isn't it? I find that it's quite helpful in my life to ask God for wisdom on a regular basis. There are times even as leaders where we feel, I feel, I'm not sure exactly what I should do in this situation. Lord, please give me, give us wisdom. God is not going to reproach you. He's not going to shame you for asking for wisdom. And this goes right in line with uh, what Robert Browning preached to us several, several months ago from Matthew chapter 7 about God's relationship to his children who ask for things, right? Like, a, like an earthly father, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Matthew 7, 7 to 11. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then, if then uh, you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And so when we ask for wisdom, that is something that honors God, and God is telling us he is happy to help us with wisdom in our life. Another application that I I really appreciated from Dale Ralph Davis, uh, I think a good insight that he mentions here is that Solomon's request was non-selfish. You know, stop and think about this again for a moment. At this point in Solomon's life, what he requested of God reveals something about him as a man, as a king. He knows that he is inexperienced. 
And he knows that he seeks to ask God for help. The, the Hebrew there is literally, God, give me a hearing heart. Give me a listening heart so that I might be a king, a leader of God's people, that I strive to do God's will. And if I do God's will, I'm asking you, Lord, for this prayer request because I want God's people to be blessed. I think that's the essence of what he's saying. I mean, wouldn't you want to have a leader like that, a king like that? His prayer request is not for himself per se. It's so that he might obey God by having a hearing heart. By the way, hear and obey, it, it's the same Hebrew word, shama, right? It could mean either one or both. And that is what Solomon is praying. He is praying for this discernment, for this wisdom, so that God's people will be blessed. That, to me, is a wonderful example of Solomon's heart and how he loved the Lord at this point in his life. It's quite a simple but a profound point that Dale Ralph Davis demonstrates for us. Solomon, at this point in his life, cares about the welfare of God's people. And he seems to know that if, if I, as a king, seek God first in my life, then God's people, they will truly be blessed. Solomon's main request is that he, would, he wants to be a leader that first listens to and obeys God so that he may be a blessing and caring for the people of God that he is placed over to lead and serve. I mean, I think all of us as Christians can already try to apply that to our own lives, can't we? Wherever we are, if you're in any form of leadership, have any responsibility, it doesn't have to be just at church. It could be at home. It could be at work. It could be with some club that you're involved with. This is a wonderful prayer that you can pray to God as well. I'm reminded by what Peter instructs the leaders of churches, the elders in 1 Peter 5 about, you know, shepherding the flock of God. What kind of an attitude is he describing there? In verse 2 of 1 Peter 5, he says, Shepherd, right, you, you elders of the church, shepherd the flock of God as God would have you to shepherd the flock. Any church in the world that has leaders like that is a church that is going to be a blessed church. It doesn't matter if they're a small church or a large church. Peter goes on to say that these kind of leaders will not take, have dominion over the sheep, right? They're not going to be hard to, they don't drive the sheep, they lead the sheep specifically by their example because Solomon did not ask for a bunch of stuff for himself. That's my modern Summary of that, God decided to illustrate that wonderful truth that we read that his son revealed in Matthew chapter 6. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, right? All of the basic things we need in life, our food, our clothes, our shelter, shall be added to you. I remember a story I read about a, years ago of an English businessman who in a time of war the queen called upon him and said i need your help and support of the war and he was nervous he says what about my needs and you remember what the queen said to him he says you take care of my business and i'll take care of your business and that's kind of what matthew 6 is teaching us if we strive for the things that are most important in the kingdom of god and if that's our focus in life god has a way of taking care of the other things in our life now, just a quick comment before we move on about verses 13 and 14. It seems to me 
that as we look again at verses 13 and 14, there is something there of a conditional aspect to the promise that God had given to David. I think there's no doubt about that. God, the word if then is used there in verse 14. If you will walk in my ways, right, things are going to go great. As your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days, right? And God is saying, look, you've, you've, you've made a great request about wanting wisdom and discernment, how to distinguish right from wrong as you rule over so that you can be a wise and a just king. They, they go hand in hand. But I'm going to throw in all these other things because you didn't ask for them. I'm going to give you great wealth and I'm going to give you great prosperity. And I will even give you a long life if you continue as David did. Did Solomon have a long life is my question. How old was Solomon when he died? He was age 60. And that tells me he did not have a long life. Something is going to go wrong. And this is such a beautiful moment, but something is going to go terribly wrong in the next few years. And so our second thought as we, illust- as we see this, this legal case illustrated for us, we can not only ask God for wisdom, but ask God to help us to apply that wisdom in our own life. Was this an easy or a difficult case? This is a well-known passage in the book of Kings. Let's read it. Maybe uh, if you're familiar with it, like this is like, I remember this, uh, this particular case. If you've never heard of it, this is an interesting case. Verse 16, then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. And imagine you're the king and you have to decide the case. You're the queen and you have to decide who's right here. We live in the same house and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. Then when I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the, in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I born, that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. I mean, even people who are not Christians have probably heard, it's possible they've heard about this so-called famous case that Solomon had to make a decision about. It's a difficult case, isn't it? This is a difficult legal case because there are no witnesses. This seems to be kind of a classic he said, she said situation, except these are two women. The one fact that everyone can agree upon or knows is that there is one baby that is no longer living But what should Solomon do at this point? I mean, he is the king of Israel in many ways. He is the supreme court of the land. He has to make the final decision. The king was to render a verdict in accordance with the law of God. Moses even taught that. And so we come down to 23 through 26. 
How did he know who was telling the truth? I mean, this is easy for us if we're familiar with the story, like, oh, yeah, right, I get a sword too. I don't think I would have thought of that if I was in that situation. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. He, he correctly summarizes the testimonies, doesn't he? And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. And the woman said, whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. And the, the demonstration, the proof that God had granted Solomon's request and giving him wisdom to know the difference between right and wrong. In this case, who is the real mother? Who's telling the truth and who's lying? Solomon used that sword command to, to reveal which was the real mother that has compassion for her son. The real mother begged Solomon not to kill the child. As one author said, if she cannot get justice for herself, she will at least get justice for her child. The other woman shows no mercy at all. And Solomon quickly understands that in her cruelty, the real mother is the one who expresses compassion and the one who is willing to give up her child. And so here is a perfect example of Solomon's wisdom and justice that goes hand in hand in a beautiful manner. Did God answer Solomon's request? In verses 27 to 28, Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. If our president did something like this, we might feel the same way. I understand why most of us today, we long for leaders that rule over us to be both wise and to exercise justice, and both of those seem to be absent. Some of our leaders don't even know how to define justice. How would you define justice? What is justice? It's talked about all the time in our society, isn't it? Could we start with that basic definition that justice is giving a person his or her due? That seems to me to be a starting point at least when we think about justice. Solomon sees the callousness in one of the ladies and he determines that cannot be the mother. And of course, once something that is quite interesting here is the, the fame of Solomon in this particular decision, it spread throughout the country. People began to tell others about what they heard. And a very helpful observation, again, that I read about, I didn't even think about this. And I think this is quite encouraging. Prostitutes in most cultures and the legal system generally don't go hand in hand. They don't work together very well, do they? When we think of Ladies, for whatever reason, they may, may be involved in prostitution. We normally don't think of them as people that receive justice in the courts. Often they're people that could be abused by men and others. 
They often live on the edges of society in the shadows. The legal system is often not their friend, and yet here we see two prostitutes in Israel, they have access to their king. It is a wonderful example that King Solomon took the time to to deal with what could be considered some of the least significant, lowest members of society. They were given justice in a very thoughtful, wise, understanding manner. King Solomon was not so important that he did not have time for the little people in his kingdom. And this is another wonderful example. Jesus displays that truth on an even far greater level. And I suppose as leaders in churches, we should try to ask God to help us to have the same attitude. That there are no little people in this congregation that we don't have time for in terms of helping. I was kind of convicted when I heard that application. We know that Solomon somehow points forward to Jesus Christ. And there are many different ways to perhaps parallel that. Solomon did offer, we heard, a thousand burnt offerings. He just offered a lot of burnt offerings for sin offerings before the Lord in worship. But we know that our, our King, Jesus Christ, he only offered one. After Solomon died, we encounter some important prophecies about a new ruler, ruler that would come, a Messiah, that would be filled with wisdom and justice. Jeremiah 23, 5 prophesied after Solomon's death, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Isaiah 2 prophesied of the Christ. In chapter 11, the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Later, Isaiah says, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Those are wonderful prophecies of a a better king, one greater than Solomon that we believe was fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. In the first coming of Jesus, we already witnessed how Jesus begins to fulfill the prophecies of both Jeremiah and the book of Isaiah. And of course, the wisdom of God that's displayed and revealed in the weakness of the gospel is disdained by the unbelieving world, isn't it? They want nothing to do with it. They don't care about that. And Paul describes that whole Attitude between the unbelievers thinking about the gospel and the real power that is revealed in a gospel of so-called weakness. In 1 Corinthians, there's a sharp contrast here. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it goes on to talk about wise and that which is wisdom, that which is real wisdom. Jesus is the one to whom, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We read about that in Colossians 2, 3, and Ephesians 1, verses 20 through 22. We see here in 1 Kings 3 the important connection between wisdom and justice for leaders that God appointed in Israel. After Solomon died, there are very few sons of David that demonstrate leadership that has both of those traits, that are both wise and they're both just. There are different ways of describing wisdom. 
Even in the book of Proverbs, we heard Proverbs 1 earlier written by Solomon. Wisdom is, all right, the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord in Proverbs 1.7. Later, wisdom in this area is hating evil. Kind of a simple, def- we've already described it from my understanding what justice is, and here's the simple popular definition of wisdom. Wisdom is a skill in learning how to live and navigate life from God's perspective. And I would be a person, and hope you are too, that you, you want to be wise and you want to be a just person. So a concluding application or two before us. If justice means giving a person his or her due, then what is the greatest application of justice in our lives? Who is the greatest one to whom we should give justice? It is to God. God deserves our worship, and it is our duty as his people to think about the greatest. It's not social justice. That's not the biggest problem in our world. It's do I, in my own life, do I desire to worship God because he is just and that is what he deserves? He is the great wise one. And I can think about that in my life as I, as I think about what Solomon prayed and how God blessed him. Second, it relates to this. If that's what justice means, first I need to show justice towards God, do I also have to show justice towards my fellow believer that is journeying with me on the way to heaven? If I am a Christian who understands justice, I will not slander my brother or sister in Christ. I will not gossip about my brother or sister in Christ because that is a misrepresentation of justice, isn't it? I simultaneously rob God of justice. He deserves in my worship, and I fail to give justice and love to my brother or sister in Christ. Every time any of us unjustly criticizes, accuses, gossips, whatever this sin may be, we are not giving justice to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And even worse, if we think that we are doing a spiritual favor by simply speaking the truth, then maybe we have been blinded in our own sin. Solomon penned Psalm 72, which the first 17 verses is an expanded prayer on, Lord, give the king your justice. It's a wonderful psalm. And for part of his life, he fulfills part of the plea, his prayer in that particular psalm. And one of his requests there, if you look later at verses 2 and 4, he describes a desire to defend the cause of the poor. And probably the two ladies at the second part of this chapter were probably in that category. Psalm 72 is a powerful and wonderful psalm. For a brief period, Solomon fulfills parts of that psalm in his own life. But Psalm 72 is even too big for Solomon to fill. Someone greater than Solomon must come and rule in perfect wisdom and justice. A wise ruler that is far greater than Solomon. And we believe that that is King Jesus. And he will return in glory someday, won't he? He will return in splendor. And the whole world and all of human history will know it, including the devil and his demons. And final justice will be given perfectly forever. The goats will be placed on one side and the sheep on the other. The former will be consigned to eternal damnation while the righteous inherit the kingdom of God. And in that day, he shall reign forever and ever. Heavenly Father, we thank you for
the wise and perfect rule of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for everything that Solomon could not fulfill in his lifetime. Lord, is in the process of being fulfilled by your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we are thankful for all that Christ has done in your wise and eternal plan to save sinners for your glory. So, Lord, we pray as your people that you would grant us wisdom and, Lord, help us to apply it in our daily life. And we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Please stand and join me in singing and closing song, Wonderful Savior.